Welcome to Local Wool, a podcast for conscientious makers. I'm Anastasia Williams, and this is episode 15. podcast is Lisa Server of LM Livestock Services. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited to, to get to visit with you tonight and, and share some of the things that I, I get to do for the sheep industry. Yeah, I'm really excited as well. And, and just so that we can kind of get, uh, I guess, kind of our feet wet. So can you just tell us about yourself and a little bit about the thousands of things that you do? <laughs> well, that's that kind of summarizes it pretty well. So, so for my business, I'm I'm basically all over the board. I'm I do anything from nutritional consulting for livestock, um, mostly sheep and cattle. I also do uh, wool testing. I have a portable wool testing um, machine called the OFTA or optical fiber diameter analyzer. And so I can do field testing of wool, which is uh, pretty important for a lot of different segments of the industry. I also buy wool um, for a company called Limpierre uh, out of Texas and South Carolina. And so I service customers in North Dakota, Eastern Montana, uh, kind of the Northwestern corner of South Dakota. And uh, I also do carcass ultrasounding for seed stock producers. And that's really important for people that are involved in the National Sheep Improvement Program, primarily seed stock producers. And so you can see that, that, that all those different hats um, including I, I work for the South Dakota Sheep Growers Association as their executive secretary. So it takes me a lot of different places within South Dakota, but also regionally uh, and nationally uh, in, in the wool industry. And I'm even doing some educational events in Canada. There's a real interest up there for folks that are trying to improve wool quality the niche marketing of, of fleeces is, is continuing to build uh, all over North America for needle arts purposes. And so uh, there's a real desire in those folks to try and improve the fleeces they are producing for their customers. And so I, I can just, I can tell you, it, it takes me all the way from Nova Scotia all the way to California. So I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited about all the things that I get to do. Yeah. And I get, I mean, it's, it's so much, but I, where did you, basically, where did you start? Like, how have you gotten to this point in, you know, into doing all these things? Well, I started out, I, I did all of my um, education at Montana State University. I have a PhD in, in animal and range sciences. And when I was finishing up that program, I had an opportunity. I was working in beef cattle, primarily in feedlot nutrition um, and forage nutrition for beef cattle. And about the end of that program, 
my funding ran out. And so I had to face the reality of I had to switch kind of switch the switch gears, so to speak. And there was an opportunity that presented itself in the sheep extension program. And I jumped in with both feet and worked for the sheep extension specialist for about 12 years, um, continued in his program after he retired. In that time frame, I was also managing the Montana Wool Lab. And so I developed a real interest in wool and I just tried to do everything I possibly could to advance my learning, my education about wool. And with that, I kind of figured out that there weren't that many people that had that type of expertise. And mm -hmm. so it was easy to find, um, you know, opportunities to share that information with people. And once I kind of left Montana and moved to South Dakota, I really expanded my business um, even into marketing of sheep and wool and it's just grown from there. Um, I, I can't say, you know, my, my foundation really came from my mentor, Dr. Rodney Cott, who was the sheep extension specialist there. Uh, he really was instrumental in developing my um, education and my craving, I guess, for more things to do with sheep and wool. Wow. And I mean, so you went to Montana and I, when, before we started recording, I mean, you mentioned that you were from Canada. So did you grow up like on a farm or anything like that? Yeah, my, my family um, owns a ranch. We run cattle um, and horses and so I've been involved, I, I guess you could trace it all the way back to my experiences in 4-H. I was heavily involved in 4-H, um, heavily involved in the day-to-day -day operations of our, of our ranch and um, immediately knew, you know, most young people when they leave home and go to college, they switch their major on average about three times. And I never veered from my interest in animal science and I just kept going. Um, I, it wasn't that I, I wasn't able to find a job after I got done with my bachelor's. I just, I, I felt like I could continue on successfully and it, and it did pay off for me. Wow. So what did, what were the programs that you studied then for like for your undergrad, for your graduate? And then I think you already mentioned the PhD. Yeah, I, you know, in, in undergraduate, I, I like I said, I focused mostly on beef cattle, but I had some opportunities to work with some great um, professors at MSU. One of my favorites was Dr. Verl Thomas. He passed away in the early 90s um, of cancer, but he was a sheep nutritionist. And one of my favorite, just a really practical kind of no BS kind of, you know, university professor that what you just don't find them like that anymore. Mm. And of course, things have changed a lot. But in my master's, I did primarily feedlot nutrition. And I worked a lot with um, cereal grains, comparing different cereal grains in a finishing ration for cattle. And I really didn't get back into sheep again until, you know, like I mentioned, right at the end of my PhD, and it was like a, it was really like a light 
switch came on. I kind of found what I thought was a species that I felt super comfortable with working working with, and I mm -hmm. developed a love of of targi sheep and a love of wool, and so I've just kept going from there. That's really cool. So, what is it? What is it that draws you to targis in particular? You know, they they are a dual purpose sheep, and one of the reasons why I've really in, you know enjoyed they're they're a you know good tempered sheep, but they produce a meaty the lambs produce a meaty carcass. They're moderately framed. Uh, their fleeces are heavy, dense, bright white, typically in that. 64 spinning count to 60 spinning counts. So, you know, basically we, we, we hope the breed is somewhere between 20 and, and 24 micron. Um, that's, that's fairly typical of the breed. So it's very well suited for kind of our niche in the U S from apparel to socks, to, to knitwear targies kind of fit that, you know, fit that, lane very very well and um in this area where i'm located at in on western south dakota there's a lot of rambouillet sheep um very well suited for the range and targis make a really great cross with rambouillets because there there's rambouillet in their background and um, they make a really good all-purpose hardy rain sheep that will produce you know good sized market lambs but also a heavy you know eight to ten pound fleece every year wow. and so that's that's one of the reasons why or the many reasons i guess i should say that i that i chose to raise those type of sheep myself Okay, well, that leads me to my next question then. So yeah, so do you raise and kind of what is what does your farm look like? Well, actually, I don't have a farm here in South Dakota. I run my sheep with a good friend of mine, um, and and you visited with him before, Wade Copran. Mm -hmm. So we have an, a you know kind of a partnership, so to speak, where he he raises and and cares for the sheep, and then my my wool from my sheep gets to go into the sock project. So, oh. um, but <laughs> it, it's, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good deal for me as well. Um, I really, again, really liked the breed and I just felt like when I left Montana state and, and Montana state had one of the founding flocks for the Targi breed. And so I got to see, a lot of the attributes or the characteristics that I, I liked in a sheep. And I knew when I started to buy my own, um, what lines uh, within the Targi breed I liked, what characteristics I liked and what I didn't like, and what I wanted to emulate in my own flock. Mm, sure, sure. Well, that's really, that's really cool. Now, kind of, we'll kind of backtrack just a little bit because I do want to talk about this on the actual uh, podcast, but so Wade, which we mentioned earlier, so just for the listeners out there, so he actually was an instructor of mine at cheering school when I went um, about a year, about a year ago at South Dakota State University. Um, and he, at that time, 
was working on developing a sock line using the wool from his flock. And Lisa actually helped him kind of, you know, get that process started. And Lisa, can you share with us kind of what that what that looks like when you're going for something that's, you know, so commercial like that? Yeah, it's 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 very, very challenging. Our industry, our wool industry is is kind of geared and and basically what it boils down to is is kind of the the niche industry or or small flock mills um, you know that handle maybe a fleece at a time we don't have a lot of intermediate size or mid-size wool processing mills in the country and then we have one very large uh, commercial processing facility that's in Jamestown, South Carolina, Chargiers. And so trying to kind of do a test run or a pilot project for something like making commercial socks is really, really challenging. Uh, and, the, and the problem lies in that, you know, the equipment on a commercial mill is is meant to deal with large lots of wool and what I mean by large is you know on on a given day chargiers will scour you know let's say between 40 and 80,000 pounds of wool well a, a pilot project to get started on doing something commercial like making socks is much much smaller um, and and so that creates some challenges and one of the great contacts that I had from my experience at and my time at Montana State was Ben Hostetler at Mountain Meadow Woolen Mill in Buffalo, Wyoming. And he has what I would consider kind of a mid-size mill. And Ben and Wade had to figure out how they were going to handle you know, basically a, a lot of wool, and, and what I mean by a lot is it was about 1,500 pounds of wool, how to process that, how to scour it, how to make combed top in order to be able to send it to um, South Carolina to go through the rest of the processing and then on to make yarn. And again, all of the commercial industry is geared for big lots of wool and the rest of us are are dealing with much smaller you know couple hundred pounds maybe you know and it it creates some huge challenges if you're trying you know especially if you're trying to make a made in america product and that's that's really was one of the goals that wade had in his sock project is he wanted to create a made in america with american wool and, you know, South Dakota wool. Um, and so there was some limitations and it was, it was a challenge for him. Wow. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hoping someday that I'll be able to, to quiz him a little bit further on it, because that's, that's a really interesting process, um, to, to think about, because, you know, those of us who are handmakers, you know, everything is kind of small batch, small batch, small batch, but to see, something actually find its way from a local, you know, producer to um, basically a larger production line, I think is, is really interesting. And, and I had, uh, when I interviewed Stephanie last, the last podcast episode as well, she was talking about 
how their fiber shed is working as well to try to help get that wool in their fiber shed onto like the garment industry, um, which I don't think is super common uh, for small producers, especially to think about. Well, most of us, you know, if we are producing, you know, wool from 40 head of sheep, our wool gets combined with other like wools starting at a warehouse. And then from there, uh, those like wools are, are grouped together in a container load, for instance, which would be, you know, between 40 and 45,000 pounds of wool to try and process that uh, you know, in a more commercial setting. So, um, it's difficult to, to think about how to maintain, I mean, the advantage of a fiber shed situation like that is you're trying to maintain the integrity or the identity of those, of those producers into a product. And in, in the commercial wool industry, maintaining that traceability is, is definitely more challenging. Um, particularly once that product moves, for instance, overseas, um, it could be combined in, um, you know, um, wools from many different places to make uh, yarn or to make top and, and then come back to the United States. So, I, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine, but uh, there are lots of, there are lots of challenges for an apparel company that wants to use um, American wool. Uh, it, it is it is challenging and it, 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 I think it's getting that process is getting better all the time, but it is it does create some challenges. Yeah, well, I mean, it's good that there are people who are who are uh, you know making those attempts so that that process can, you know it can be seen that, hey, this is something that you know individuals well, want. It's no different than the local food movement. People right now have a craving for knowing where their their garments or their their clothes comes from. Yeah. And, and I think as and particularly, I would say, and and I've kind of done a little bit of research into this, particularly the millennial age people who are really grasping onto the idea of local foods also are grasping onto the idea of wanting to know where the wool shirt that they that they just bought and if, if they had to spend a hundred dollars on it well they sure want to know where it came from yeah and and so I think I think there's more opportunities for these type of pro you know projects coming coming down the line at us I think you know <laughs> everything just takes money that's all <laughs> yeah yeah exactly that's all but yeah, I would totally agree with you. I mean, I think I am on the verge of like, I think I'm at the beginning of the millennials, but I would agree with that. And I'm definitely one of those individuals. And that's partially why I even started this podcast is that, you know, I think it's important for people to realize, you know, why you're spending so much on the local wool that you're, you're buying. And, um, you know, it's not just like going to the store or going to like Michael's or Hobby Lobby and grabbing, you know, whatever mass produced acrylic yarn, you're actually, you know, you're supporting a farmer who does X, Y, Z with this many sheep, whether that's a lot, whether that's a little. Um, but you know, there's a reason that they cost the, the amount that they do. Um, but yes. And I really hope that it continues to, 
to trend that way. Um, and I guess, well, I kind of want to go back to a little bit more of what you do before we kind of jump into like commercial sure. aspects a little more, sure. but it's really interesting to talk to you because so far everything has been, you know, small producer, small producer, small producer, which of course is, you know, like, I love that, but I also think it's really interesting to hear it from the other side of things, especially since you have that knowledge. But, um, so it sounds like, you know, you travel a ton. Um, I don't know. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. And I, I'd like to know kind of, you know, what is, what is it, what is your schedule like? And does it change based on the time of year or, you know, particular regions or anything like that? Sure. You know, you know, um, I figure when it all boils down to it, um, I figure I, I spend about 50% of my time, uh, traveling and that, you know, again, with all the different hats I wear that can take me, uh, to Utah to ultrasound that can take me to North Dakota buying wool. Um, my, my pickup truck, I figure I average about 50,000 miles a year. So that's kind of like my moving, my moving office. And, you know, it does depend on the, on the time of year. Uh, Springtime, I spend a lot of time, of course, uh, going to ranches, looking at wool. I'm at the warehouse buying wool, uh, receiving wool, weighing wool in, um, testing wool. And then also, this is about the same time that uh, rams are reaching about a yearling age. And for white-faced sheep or, or breeds like Targhee and Rambouillet, we're starting to test, uh, measure uh, loin eye size. And that reflects, this will be kind of interesting to you, but actually if I, when you measure that loin eye size, it has a relationship to the percent retail cuts and, or the dressing percentage of that ram's offspring. And so that's why seed stock producers are interested in doing that. And I always say, you know, if you're going to support the wool industry, you have to support, you have to eat lamb too, because they're all, you know, it's all mixed together. Um, you know, we don't have, we don't have produce wool unless we are also producing lamb. So, I work with a lot of growers in the springtime doing that type of thing. And then once we move into the summer, it's the same thing, just a different type of, of sheep that are being tested at that point. And um, I spend a lot of time trying to visit customers uh, in the month of September. That's usually the time of year that we're selling rams or we're selling seed stock. And so I have a lot of, uh, spend a lot of time doing customer visits and just trying to see, you know, what the, what the, the Rams that they produced for the last year, what they look like and how they're going to sell at sales. And so, and can I, can I ask you one question? Yeah. I have two, I have two questions because I am not well versed in the, the meat side of things. So when we're saying seed stock, first of all, we're talking about like Rams, purebred producers. Okay. Yes. Or registered or, Okay. Got it. So that's, that's that one. And then the the second term that I, I, my brain is formulating what I think it means, but loin eye. Yeah. So, or, or basically you think, think about the muscle that runs down either side of the spine. 
Um, you know, when we're eating a, a T-bone steak or um, a loin chop or a rib chop from a lamb, um, a T-bone steak from a from a beef cow or beef cattle, um, you're you're essentially got a portion of the loin in 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 that cut, and so like a loin chop is almost like a little a little mini T-bone, and so we care about that muscle because if that muscle is big, if the loin is big, that means that that the muscularity of that ram should it should carry through the rest of its uh, skeleton so to speak and so it'll have more uh, the offspring of that ram will have a greater cutability meaning there'll be less um, waste and more uh, saleable product for the consumer does that make oh, sense yes yeah yeah that does that does it's really interesting um, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Totally cut you off. So we're talking. No, 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 no. We That's got through September. Those are good questions. <laughs> good <laughs> questions. Okay. So yeah, we got through September. Oh yeah. So into the fall is when, again, when we're starting to measure, um, you've got seed stock or purebred producers that are doing the same measurement, but this time in their ewe lambs or their yearling ewes. Because those are the those are the ewes that are being retained into their flock, and they're half the they're half the equation, and so they want to make sure that their female part of the equation is equally as productive, okay. and so we we sometimes I sometimes measure those um, those type of sheep at that time point in the fall. Also, um, just a, there may be some fall uh, fall shearing going on, so I'll be receiving wool at that point as well. Uh, a lot of just uh, wool testing going on, again, for seed stock producers wanting to make sure that they're keeping the best females for their flock. Okay. So, and then, and then there's convention season. I have to go to, you know, I try and get a bunch of... <laughs> Uh, sheep grower and, and wool producer conventions, again, for, you know, just trying to uh, visit with my customers and trying to see the, into the future of what they're looking for as well. Wow. Okay. And so do any of your um, wool producers, like if you go to like a wool producer convention, does that ever kind of um, cross over with any of like the the hand fiber or like the hand? Oh, sure. So this past year at our own uh, South Dakota Sheep Growers Convention, we actually focused primarily on wool. And we had a panel discussion that featured all the way from a small mill. And it was a good friend of mine from Texas that came up and presented Dawn Brown. She owns um, Independence Fiber in Texas. And she deals with Texas Rambouillet and Texas mohair. And so she talked a little bit about kind of some of the more specialty marketing of, of wool. And then we had all the, way, all the way to a large international marketer of wool on that panel discussion. So it was a real cross-section. And I think you'd be surprised... Well, I'm, you wouldn't be surprised, but maybe some of your listeners <laughs> might, might be surprised that um, there's a there's a, a lot of commonalities um, 
from even a, in a large international marketer of wool all the way down to the hand spinning um, niche marketing of wool. Um, the things that his customers care about are the same things that the small niche marketer cares about. Um, these things like wanting to know the ranch's story, wanting to know that sheep's story. Um, those are those are trends right now that are being reflected all the way into commercial wool marketing. Wow. So, yeah, I, I think I think it's surprising right now how much interest there is on things like uh, and you and you heard you've heard it in several media discussions right now about the sustainability or you know protecting the earth well sheep are one of the best methodologies for improving soil health and improving rangeland um, they provide diversity and um, that story we have to as producers and I'm kind of sorry I apologize I'm getting on my soapbox because I'm I get very passionate about the idea that sheep don't belong on the landscape because they do. Um, they're a part of a very important equation on keeping rangelands and soil healthy. Yeah, and, I agree. And uh, the more we talk about it, you know, maybe we can counteract some of the negative messages that our agricultural industry is facing right now. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard a lot lately with dairy cattle, especially. Yeah, um, that's that's difficult to hear, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. You know, it's interesting to see where that where that goes. I know that there's, you know, I know that you know all this stuff as well, but um, it seems to be there's a larger conversation into some of the preferences towards certain vegan things. And I'm not saying everything in a vegan lifestyle is negative, but I think no, also, me neither. But I think there's also a lot of um, maybe undereducation, miseducation. I don't think either of those are words. That's okay. But um, lack of education. There we go. That one is a term. <laughs> um, that of uh, that a lot of that stuff ends up being replaced with like plastics. Yeah, and, and and we could go on and on and on and talk about the value of wool and versus the the value of of polyester and what it's doing to um, the environment and we know that wool is is the best one of the best natural fibers out there it just we have to continue to get that message out to consumers yeah yeah I would I agree with that so I want to kind of talk about um well let's kind of we'll, we'll just kind of do an overview here of maybe some of the pros and cons of that you can see what do you think about kind of smaller kind of producer operations versus larger producer operations like what are some like maybe possibly pros and cons that you see of each of those having kind of dealt with both of those yeah I'm glad you asked that because I you know, I, I wanted, I was hoping that you would get around to, to asking me about that because I do get to work with small growers and I get to work with very large growers that are in the, you know, five to 10,000 head range. And, you know, one of the, you know, one of the disadvantages I would say that, that smaller flocks have 
unless they're producing all, all the same kind of sheep, is the uniformity of the product they're producing. And, and what I mean by that is, and not everybody's like this, but, uh, you know, I have friends that have, you know, one Wensleydale sheep and one Romney sheep and one Blue Face Luster sheep. And that is great for marketing fleece by fleece. But if you have to try and market that wool commercially, those fleeces don't fit together in uh, a commercially marketable lot of wool. And so that creates challenges on the wool side. But think of it, think of it on the lamb side as well, that you have to try and market the sheep that you don't retain into your flock. And with that, the uniformity of the lamb product that you're producing isn't necessarily, you know, the, the same finish size, isn't the same um, carcass size. And so that creates challenges because eventually, like I said, those lambs do make it to commercial chains unless you have um, a complete package of of specialty marketing. Um, from, a, from a commercial perspective, large flocks have an advantage because everything that they're producing is uniform. And so it's very predictable in terms of wool processing. Um, that's why we, when we have larger lots of wool, we do core testing on that wool and we determine things like micron yield, vegetable matter, but we also look at things like the standard deviation and the coefficient of variation and how variable that wool is. And that matters to a processor. The, the more uniform that product is, the more predictable spinning yarn that it'll make. Whereas if it's very variable, it may process much coarser than the core test micron might be. And the same with on the lamb side, um, larger flocks have an advantage again because the product they're producing is predictable. They know that every weather lamb that comes from that flock should finish at approximately, let's say 140 to 150 pounds. That makes the, the feeds that they use and the schedule that those lambs are on um, and then the way that they um, when they're harvested, the way that the, the carcass looks, the, the yield from that carcass, the type of chops that it produces, um, those will all be very, very predictable. And so it makes it uh, much more appealing for buyers when they know the wool and the lamb is very, very predictable. Um, you know, the, the challenges, I guess, from a, from a marketing perspective uh, for large growers, you know, it's a, it's a little bit easier for them to take advantage of all the different ways that you can market lamb and wool, from direct marketing to um, warehouse sales, for instance, or sale barn selling of lamb. Um, they have more options available to them um, maybe than a small grower might have. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So um, I would just say we, you know, as a, as a small producer, um, 
it's not always in your in your goals to produ to produce a very uniform product. You you may have a, a a real love for you know Wensleydale sheep or you know another breed of sheep, but you like to have a fleece from several different breeds of sheep. And so you know finding replacement stock, finding rams to maintain those lines of of wool or those breeds of sheep are, are certainly more challenging. And then you could get into the whole idea of breed integrity and crossing of sheep and trying to maintain some of the heritage breeds. Um, again, becomes more and more challenging trying to find purebred um, seed stock for to replenish your flock. Mm -hmm. So um, I hope I, I hope I answered your question, but uh, you know, there's there's pros and cons to both, certainly. But um, and, and and then you have, you know, as a large grower, you have so much more issue with predation, or, or the potential for predation. You have more issue with, um, you know, making sure that you're, you know, you're grazing, in, you know, in a ecological manner, a sustainable manner. Um, but those things also apply to a small flock grower as well. So. Um, again, most of the time we have a lot more uh, commonality than we do differences. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, that's really interesting. And when you are doing like your wool buying, are you mostly, I'm assuming then in, in those scenarios, you're working with larger producers? Actually, I'm working with all different ranges um, okay. from somebody who brings me, you know, 10 bags, 10 garbage bags of wool all the way to somebody who brings me um, 13 400-pound bales of wool. Uh, so I have a real diversity of clients uh, that come to the warehouse. So what? How does it? How does it work then? So when you're the whole process, I guess I'm really curious about yeah. what wool buying entails. Yeah, so so when a grower comes to deliver their wool, what I typically do, and and there are there are many variations of this depending on where you're marketing your wool across the U.S. I'll just kind of describe my process. When a grower comes in, <clears throat> we weigh up the wool, and what I mean by that is we weigh every every um, bag of wool that they bring into the warehouse, and when we do that, or after we do that, I take a look at that wool. And what I mean by that is I, depending on the vessel that it's in, whether it's in a nylon square pack or a burlap um, sausage bag or a black garbage bag, you know, I make sure I take what I think are representative samples of that to evaluate it. Um, I need to look at it myself you know, if it's a larger lot, we're going to take core samples, meaning, I don't know if you've ever cored hay before, but basically you're, you're, you're taking a core tube and you're pressing it through the wool in order to get a representative sample of that bale. So that's for larger growers, but for smaller growers, we have to take what, what we call grab samples. And grab samples allow me to look at things like um, not only the grade of that wool, but I also look at the type of vegetable matter that's in it, how much vegetable matter in is in it. I kind of try and predict 
the yield. And what I mean by yield is how much clean wool that grease, that lot of greasy wool will, will yield or will produce. I look at things like length of the wool. I look at things like strength, how sound the wool is. I look at style, meaning is it bright and white? Um, is it um, long and strong? Um, there's, there's kind of a subjective um, quality that I have to assess. And um, I also look at preparation, meaning is there things in the wool that should have been taken out at, on the shearing board? For instance, is there, you know, manure tags? Is there second cuts? Is there um, things that should have been what we call skirted out? And, and your, your listeners will be very familiar, particularly from the hand spinning side, because you're trying to produce the highest quality fleece wool that you can. And we're trying to do the same thing on a commercial scale. Um, we just maybe sometimes don't do it to the degree that a hand spinning fleece might undergo. And so once I'm done that evaluation, then I determine kind of where it fits um, on the scale of, of pricing. And uh, I try and decide at that point what type of price I or what, what price I can offer the grower. And I either call them um, within a couple of days and basically, you know, here's what I can offer you for your wool. Um, you know, there are some times where I will say, you know, things are in the market are getting tougher. So you might want to consider, you know, accepting or selling the wool right away. There's some times where I'll, I would tell the grower that um, we're at the beginning of the trading season. We might want to, here's what I can offer you right now. But if you want to, if you want to wait for a period of time um, and we'll, will reevaluate things, let's say in a couple of weeks, we can do that as well. So, and then the, the producer gets paid. Okay. And then what do you do with the wool after that? <laughs> so what I do is, uh, you know, for those real small growers that are bringing in a garbage sack, I match those up with, with fleeces that are similar in characteristic. And then we try and press it or bale it into nylon square packs that are between 400 and 450 pounds. That's a, that is a shippable amount of wool um, that we try and containerize. We'll try and get, you know, let's say, you know, 90 some bales in a container that will go um, either to uh, directly to Texas to be um, shipped from that point to the uh, Bowman warehouse down there. It could go directly um, to a shipping point where it would go overseas. Primarily, uh, most of our wool um, goes to a, another central warehouse and then is combined with other like wools and, and it's either processed here in the U.S. or it's processed somewhere globally. Okay. And, um, so how much do you, how big is your warehouse then? How much can you house in there? Oh, uh, you know, it's, it's a small, you know, volume, volume wise, um, we're, you know, we're, we're a small warehouse. Um, there are, there are larger, there's a larger warehouse in South Dakota and regionally there's much, 
much larger warehouses. I'm, I'm kind of small potatoes, but the thing that I kind of bring to the, the table, I guess, so to speak, <clears throat> is that I'm, I'm able to give a marketing opportunity to smaller growers that are in kind of an isolated area. You know, North Dakota's a long ways, you know, in some spots in North Dakota is a heck of a long ways from Billings, Montana, heck of a long ways to Belfouche. And so I provide them, um, you know, another opportunity, an, a, you know, a closer opportunity for them to, to market their wool. And the one thing I will say that, and why I was kind of adamant about trying to keep that little warehouse open was I think chipping away at the infrastructure of the sheep industry, it's happening all the time. You know, we, we have challenges in, in pharmaceuticals. We have challenges sometimes finding shears. We have challenges um, with expertise. And so taking away this wool warehouse, you know, just as another kind of chip in, in the, you know, in the cup for them that might tip them over the edge that, ah, I'm just going to sell my sheep. Mm. And so um, I, I think that it provides a service for those growers to, to keep things local. So, you know, again, yeah. another local, another local uh, marketing opportunity for them. <clears throat> yeah, that's great. Um, and as far as marketing goes, I know that, that you assist um, producers with that as well. So what kinds of, what kinds of things do you guys work on for that? Well, wh- you know, one of the things that there's, you know, of course, there's always an opportunity with marketing your, your livestock. And of course, um, most, most sheep producers are very traditional. They've gone to a sale barn, you know, and they've marketed their, you know, lambs and they've marketed their ewes always in a, in a sale barn form, or they've had the same buyer, direct sales buyer that has come to them for a period of time. And I think that there's some different opportunities for marketing um, in the sheep business right now. And although Facebook kind of creates some challenges with, with um, livestock marketing, mm-hmm. um, there's other avenues to take. And I just, I, one of the things that I, I like to encourage growers is that they kind of have to maybe also think about some of these non-traditional ways of, of reaching people. And so I've kind of found a little niche in that regard is is helping people um advertise sheep and and then basically screening those um that process for them so so they can go beyond their local market they can actually access more of a regional or national market wow yeah that's really that's really interesting and and it seems too that you know, there's just, I've talked about it with some of the producers already. It's, it sometimes is hard to get yourself to a point where you're thinking about all the different ways of marketing as a producer, because your time is so limited. Yes. So I could see that being a huge benefit of having somebody kind of in your corner, helping you navigate all of that. Well, you know, here's a, here's a perfect example. Last night I had 
um, a, a, an acquaintance or a friend of mine reach out to me and, the, and she said, gosh, we, we really are just looking for 25 more bread ewes. And we, you know, here's what we're looking for. We're looking for 25 Targi bread ewes. We don't necessarily care about age. Um, we just, we, we, we think we're ready to expand just 25 more sheep. And so I put up um, just a real quick advertising last night and within 10 minutes, somebody reached out to me and again, another acquaintance and they had decided that they were at the age where they were ready to pass on their flock to somebody else. And it was just a few more sheep than the 25, it was 32. And within 30 minutes we had the deal made and yeah. those sheep are going to a new family that's going to, um, you know, value them as much as the family that was selling them. So yeah. that all happened via the Internet or that's social great. media. Yeah. Those are the kinds of stories that people need to hear about. I mean, it's no different than the way we market fleece by fleece. I mean, you know, raw fleece on, on Facebook or dirty, dirty fleece done dirt cheap. There's so many different um, ways that we can market wool and we can market sheep. Um, you know, some, sometimes it's, it's more challenging, but I've, I've found some ways to kind of, um, not necessarily bypass some of the rules, but just, um, fly under the radar, I guess, so to speak. And, um, you know, I, I, again, I, I, I just being able to reach those people that, I mean, I had a larger group of sheep that I was helping market and I had calls and messages from people basically all over the country that were interested in those sheep. Wow. Yeah, that's great. That's it's, it's that the provides... power of the Internet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what about like you specifically? What do you have coming up on, you know, any 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 big things that you're going to be doing or interesting things you're going to be doing coming up? Well, I'll put on my my South Dakota sheep growers hat. Um, you know, we have several events that that the Sheep Growers Association here in South Dakota sponsor. One of them is a premium yearling ewe sale, which happens every year at the end of July. And again, we we bring together some of the top commercial and registered breeders um, in the region to try and hit some of the producers that are looking to expand their flocks, uh, young producers that are looking to get into the sheep business, 4-H and FFA age kids that are, are wanting to expand their sheep flocks or get started raising sheep. And so this will be the third year of that um, event. And we're, we're really excited because we kind of set the market. Uh, that July sale helps kind of set the tone for the way um, yearling sheep are going to sell for the rest of the summer and fall. And so that's a that's an important regional event. And then, of course, our own convention, um, if you're a, a, a South Dakota or, or Nebraska or Wyoming or Montana, North Dakota, you might be interested in our convention this year. We're going to focus on primarily on um, the lamb side of, it, of the industry. And so um, it, I think it's of great interest, you know, when you when you boil it all down, sheep producers' income primarily, and I would say between eighty and ninety percent of their income that that a ranch derives comes from the sale of lamb, 
and and the sale of wool accounts for a very small percentage. And so this year, again, we've we've chosen to focus in a lot on the lamb side of marketing and and raising sheep. Wow, that's really great. And I I mean, like there again, I it's kind of unfortunate we only have like a around like an hour to talk about all this stuff. <laughs> I just feel like you know your your experiences and your knowledge is so vast, and it's kind of sad we only get to tap into such a small amount of it, but. It, um, if people want to try to find you like online, like where can they do that? Well, I have a website, um, lmlivestock.com. You can visit me there and, and reach out and contact me there. And I, of course I'm on Facebook, um, LM Livestock Services on Facebook and you can reach out to me there. And, and, uh, you know, if we want to, you want to continue the conversation or, or, um, you know, they want to know more about some of the things that I do um, just questions about the industry in general, um, they can feel free to, to, I'm, I'm always, um, excited to talk to people from all facets of the industry. And, uh, I, you know, I, I've got, I've got some exciting, you know, different things that are coming up in the spring, but, uh, you know, it, lots of people do. I mean, you know, they're excited about lambing, they're excited about shearing and, uh, uh, you know, I, I think the, the sheep industry is just so, so filled with so much optimism and, and positivity right now. I, I'm glad to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, I'm glad you're a part of it, too. And I, I really, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. You bet. I'm, I was, I was more than, I'm sorry it took us so long to connect. <laughs> you can only imagine it was, it was my travel schedule that, that was keeping me from doing it. If you're interested in learning more about some of the things that we talked about today, including uh, how microns are calculated and just some of the links to the different mills that Lisa mentioned and just some of the stuff that she does, you can certainly uh, find more on our show notes at www.woolanddye.com. That's W-O-O-L-A-N-D-D-Y-E.com slash podcast. And I'm so sorry, we just got a parrot and he makes noise and it makes all the other birds make noise. And there will forever now be bird noises in the background. Until next time.